Hello, Grace family. As always, it's good to be with you in this way, and we're hoping that you received our video update this week that has information about our transitions that we'll be making as a church community. And if you didn't catch that, we encourage you to go on our website and just look up conversations about our Sunday home gatherings. That said, as we come to worship together now, we want to be people who are centered on God, who are grounded in who he is and his character, that are satisfying ourselves in him. And as we come to worship, we want that to be the posture that we bring. And so I'm going to read Psalm 103 that says, Praise the Lord, my soul. All of my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, for he forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems you from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with every good thing. This is the God that we're coming to worship even now. And so we want to be reminding ourselves that he's a God who forgives us. He heals. He's crowning us with love and compassion. And he is the one who can truly satisfy. So let's take some time to pray and just center our minds and hearts on him now. Father, we just come to you now and we thank you that you are a God who wants to satisfy our hearts with yourself that you are the one who provides truly good things in a world that is providing things that are substitutes. Lord, we pray that we would ground ourselves in you, that we wouldn't be shaken by all the whims of the world, but that we would truly be centered on who you are. And Lord, we recognize that that comes through being in your word and having your truth change us. So we ask even now that you would come and make us aware of you, the one who forgives our sins, the one who heals our diseases, the one who crowns us and overwhelms us with your love and compassion. Lord, we just invite you now, come and fill us. We pray this in your name. Amen. My worth is not in what I own, not in the strength of flesh and bone, but in the costly wounds of love at the cross. My worth is not in skill or name, in win or lose, in battle or shame.
So as we continue to look at the power of God's word in our lives, we'll be in Genesis. So join along with me. This is first off Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And Genesis 3, 1-7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will surely not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Grace family. So today, this is week two on this conversation about taking in Scripture, chewing on it, meditating it, so that we live these lives that are rooted 
and grounded and refreshed. So we talked about that last week. I want to continue on that general theme today. And then next week, we'll get really practical in terms of how do we actually take in God's word in a way that's going to work for us, given our unique personalities. So we have this couple passages in Genesis that I imagine at first glance, you're probably wondering, what does this have to do with God's word and reading scripture? So what I want to do this morning is I want to go on a, just a quick journey together through Genesis 1 through 3, kind of see some of the dynamics at play there. I want to go on a really quick journey through our current cultural moment that we're in right now and see how all of this is related and see how central God's word is to the whole thing. So first, let's look through Genesis 1 through 3. You probably already know this, but really Genesis 1 through 3 is so foundational to a to a biblical worldview. It introduces all the major themes of Scripture. Themes like, who are we? What what kind of creatures are we? Where are we? What kind of a place is this that God has put us in? What's our role in this place? What are our problems and what is the solution? So you really have to start at the beginning to understand the major themes. And today what I want to do is I want to talk about this really interesting dynamic you see in Genesis 1 through 3, which is this, that... uh, We were created to be creatures who were like God in some ways and yet not like God in other ways. That's how God wanted it to be. And we'll look at how we messed that up, how we turn it on its head and how that's had disastrous results in our world and how God's word, I think, is is key to a way back to the way God wants it. All right, so let's look at Genesis 1 through 3. We'll start with the creation account in Genesis 1. And this, the, the, my main point in Genesis 1 is to say that God created us to be like him. So Genesis 1 gives us, I think, just this, this dazzling account of how God creates this amazing place and fills it with amazing creatures. And it's a story of beauty and order and diversity and just this world full of untapped potential. And then on the final day, day 6, it, it slows down and God chooses to create one last creature. And this creature is going to be qualitatively different than all the other creatures. This is what God says in verse 21. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. I call this God's grand experiment. He chooses to make these creatures who are like him, who are made in his likeness. And we're we're never told specifically what it means to be made in God's likeness, whether that is referring to our creative capacities, our intellectual capacities, our relational capacities, our moral capacities. My assumption is it's kind of a mix of all of that. It's, It's what distinguishes us from the rest of the creation, the rest of the creatures that God made. And what is clear is that being made in his likeness makes us uniquely qualified to play the role that he has for us in the creation, which is to rule over the rest of creation. So this is Genesis 1. God creates these creatures that are in his likeness and says, I want you to rule over the rest of my creation. I want you to be my representatives, my image bearers in my creation. I want you to bring my righteousness and my justice and my order and my beauty, my shalom to the rest of creation. All right, so Genesis 1, made like God to rule over his good world. But then what we see in Genesis 2 and 3 is 
In another way, we were created to be not like God. All right, so Genesis 2 narrows in then on the creation of Adam and Eve. They're placed in this beautiful garden, Eden, to work it, to be the gardeners, to rule over God's good creation. And they're really given everything they could want, but they are given one prohibition. We see it in chapter 2, verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So one prohibition. No eat, essentially, is the prohibition. And I was thinking this week um, that the prohibition, no touch. As a parent who's raised three kids now, no touch was the first prohibitive commandment I gave to my kids. No touch. When they were mobile, when they could finally crawl or start to walk even, that was the most important first command. No touch, right? Don't touch that. No, I pick them up and wait. No touch. Sometimes they get a little swat on the tush. No touch. That's the That's the first command oftentimes of children. And this is God's first prohibition to Adam and Eve. No touch or actually no eat. And we need to think carefully about this. Like what, what the thing that they were to not eat was fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We need to think through what did, what did this tree mean? What did eating from this tree represent? So anyways, in chapter three, the serpent comes along And uh, he tempts them to eat from this tree. And he makes a very interesting promise to them. Look at verse 5 in chapter 3. You will certainly not die. That's verse 4. Then verse 5. For God knows then when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So very interesting. He's coming to these creatures who are already like God, made in God's likeness, and saying to them, you can be like God in a new way, in a a way that is deeper and better and more satisfying. And and what he's insinuating about God is is this way of being God-like is so good and satisfying that God just wants to keep that to himself. Like he doesn't want to share that with anybody else. He wants to keep you in your place. And so let me show you an image, uh, just a simple image of a tree and its fruit. And let's say this represents the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Most likely it was not an apple tree, but in our tradition, we often think of it that way. So what does it mean to eat from this tree and to become like God? I think what it means is to to take from this fruit is to assert for ourselves the, the right to determine good and evil. It's essentially to say, I'll decide for myself what's good and what's evil, what's true and what's false, False. what's what's healthy and what's unhealthy. I'll, I'll claim the right to that knowledge for myself. And the truth is that that is a right that only God, the creator, should have, right? He's the one who created the, the moral fabric of this universe. He's the one who understands how it all holds together. So he alone should be the decider of good and evil. But to take from this fruit is to, is to say, I want to be like God in that way. And so they take from the fruit. And what's interesting, as you go on in the chapter, down to verse 22 in chapter 3, is that they eat and God actually affirms that, yes, in fact, they have now become like him in this new way. If you look at verse 22, it says, And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. So what he's saying is the man has now 
and the woman, of course, they have taken on for themselves this godlike role of determining good and evil for themselves. And of course, God is lamenting this reality because he knows it's going to have disastrous consequences for history. And that's what happens when we cut ourselves off from God as the source of truth, the source of what is good and evil, and we play God ourselves, then all sorts of bad things begin to happen. So just to sum this up, Genesis 1 through 3. Genesis 1, God is basically creating these creatures and saying, I want you to be like me. I want you to be my representatives. I want you to rule and bring my righteousness and my justice and my shalom to my creation. Genesis chapter 2 through 3 is saying, is, is God saying, and yet I don't want you to be like me. I don't want you to be like me in this way. I don't want you deciding for yourselves what is good and evil. Let, let me just say that that's above your pay grade, right? I want you to trust me. Trust me for that information. Trust me that I know what will be good for you and what will be bad for you. You trust me. Trust the words I speak to you about what is good and what is evil. So I want you to be like me in this way, but I don't. I want you to be unlike me in this way. I want you to depend on me in this way. And and the fall is essentially us flipping that on its head and saying, we want to be like you in that second way. We want to assert for ourselves. We want to decide for ourselves what is good and what is evil. And because we've chosen to be like God in that way, we are now no longer like God in the way we're supposed to be. Not as much at least, right? We still are image bearers, but we no longer bring his righteousness and his goodness to the rest of creation. Instead, we bring our brokenness and our sin and our dysfunction and our violence to, to the world. You know, uh, you've probably heard many times if you've grown up in the church that pride is the root of all evil. And I think that that's fundamentally true. But when we think of pride, even in our own lives, we can't just have a picture of, of some sort of like outward pride of this boastful, bragging kind of person. We need to be thinking about that inner posture deep within that is subtle and that may never come out explicitly through our words, but it's that posture that deep down says, I know better than God. That's what pride fundamentally is. It's it's that place that says, I know what will make me happy. I know what will be best for me. I know what will lead to the good life, right? I'm going to decide for myself what that will be. And I really do think that pride is the root of all evil in the sense that pride is the sin behind the sin, right? Behind every sin that we commit, there is that other sin that has made a decision that I'm going to decide for myself to do this thing. I'm going to decide that this thing is going to be better for me than what I know God would want me to do. That's the sin behind the sin. That's that's the sin behind adultery. That's the sin behind pornography. That's the sin behind greed, behind racism, behind lying behind not honoring the Sabbath, all of these sins, at at the heart of it is, I know better than what God's word speaks to me. And so I'll be the captain of my own ship, right? I'll, I'll determine my own reality for myself. And that posture has wreaked havoc in this world. And we are living in a cultural moment, I think, where this posture that I'm talking about has really reached new levels in some pretty astounding ways. I mean, if you just think the last, especially the last 75 years or so, really it's been coming for a couple hundred years, but we've really seen the rise of what we now know as postmodernism, especially in, in the West. And really prior to this, every society prior to us kind of 
lived with this assumption there there's some objective truth out there right whether that truth is god or the gods or fate or something like that but there there is a world out there that is what it is and we have to figure out how to live well within the world that it is we may disagree with that what that is but you know we're all trying to do that but what we've seen in the last 100 years especially is really the remarkable erosion of even the idea of objective truth and of, of objective reality, that now there, there is no objective truth. There is no authority with a capital A, right? There's no, there's no grand story that explains the meaning of life. In fact, if someone sells you, tries to sell you on a story, it's probably just a power play, right? It's probably, they're just trying to control you or oppress you. That's, that is the world that we're living in now. And when, when there is no objective truth, there is no authority, then the human individual is left to determine good and evil for themselves. The book of Judges, the final verse in, in that book is a really profound verse, and, and let me read it to you. It says this, In those days Israel had no king. All the people did what seemed right in their own eyes. I mean, I, I read that recently. I thought, what a great description of our world today. Right? There, there's no king. There's no authority. There's no agreed-upon starting points. And so everybody is left to determine reality for themselves. So every year, the Oxford Dictionary comes out with a word of the year. And in 2016, the word of the year is actually a hyphenated word. The word of the year was post-truth. And it's this idea that we're, we're now living in a post-truth world. And this is what was described there, post-truth. Relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. Man, that so perfectly captures the world today. We now talk about things like my truth, right? I, I have my truth and you have your truth. I mean, a couple decades ago, people said, wait, what do you mean? No, you have your opinion and I have my opinion, but truth is what it is. But we've moved to talking about, no, now I have my truth. And really, again, in a post-truth world, the individual is left to determine good and evil for themselves. And when individuals are left to do that, then I can guarantee you the priority will be given to uh, individual experience, right? Individual psychological experience and emotions and sensibilities and feelings and intuitions. And the goal of life will be increasingly not some commitment or obligation to some larger good, but the goal of life will be inner happiness, comfort, satisfaction, and of course, the desire for, for individual freedom and autonomy and, and expression. A, a freedom to determine reality as we see fit. And again, we're seeing this play out in some really um, fascinating ways, maybe if I can put it that way, in our culture today. I mean, the last 60 years, for example, um, we have seen the redefinition of the Institute of Marriage where it was this institution that existed for, for the good of society, right? Ultimately for the flourishing of children. It has now been redefined to basically two people's feelings, some romantic feelings towards each other in a particular moment. Or of course, in the last decade, we're seeing just this amazing redefinition of gender, where we've taken something that is so biologically foundational as gender itself and are beginning to say as a society, even that, can be self-determined according to um, what we see fit. Last week, I talked about some of the, the technological advances we've had, which are in so many ways great, but 
particularly the internet and the online experience that we have that's really, I think, accelerating this, this whole dynamic towards just individual freedom and self-determination. I mean, last week, again, we, we looked at the, the online experience, which is there to create you know, maximum freedom to enter into a world of my own choosing, and this world then increasingly gets shaped according to my own sensibilities. All of that to say, we're, we're in a world right now where we're seeing in some really interesting ways Humanity saying, we're going to decide for ourselves what is good and evil and even what reality itself is. And I think we're get, beginning to see some of the dangers of, of these movements because the truth is in a society where there is no objective truth, where there is no God or even some sacred order, everyone does what's right in their own eyes. And that society will be increasingly volatile and unstable. By definition, it lacks any foundation. So what's the way back? <laughs> I want to bring this back to our topic at hand. Well, first, let me say, ultimately, the way back is Jesus Christ. Ultimately, the way back is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the one who was made in the image of God, the one who was perfectly in the likeness of God, and yet being in the likeness of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he chose instead to humbly submit himself to his father's plan for him and go the humble sacrificial way of the cross. And obviously it's through his sacrifice on the cross that we're forgiven. And that becomes the doorway then into life with God again. So ultimately the answer is of course the gospel of Jesus Christ. But practically speaking for each one of us, that being said, I think the way back is right here. The way back is this book. It is going back to this book and reading it and taking it in, and in doing so, finding our rightful place in God's world again, which is to say to God, God, we are not going to try to play God anymore. We're not going to decide for ourselves what is good and what is evil. We're going to trust you for that knowledge, which you have provided for us in this book, because we want to be image bearers in the Genesis one way, not the Genesis three way. And one of the very practical ways we do that is by going back to the book and letting God tell us what is good and what is evil. And I want to leave you with a particular word as we approach God's word. This, is, this will be the word for this week. And I want to leave you with the word humility. That um, we need to approach this book with humility. Because we need, to, we need to recognize now in light of the fall, there is hardwired in me um, this desire to think what I want to think and to feel what I want to feel and to do whatever I want to do. And what that means is with that hardwiring, as I come to this book, sometimes this book is going to offend my sensibilities. Oftentimes, this book is going to confront me in some way. It'll, it'll, it'll either confront the way I'm thinking about things or it'll confront the way I'm acting and living my life. And so what I think is so desperately needed in today's world that is in short supply is humility when it comes to God's word. That first and foremost, I come to the word with a personal humility, a humility that realizes, man, like I don't have this world figured out. I mean, I might think I do, but I'm just a guy. I've been around for 45 years. It's not that long in the grand scheme of themes. I'm not that big of a deal. Um, and I really don't know a lot about a lot. And maybe this book produced over thousands of years that has literally changed millions of lives. <laughs> Maybe this book knows better than me what's going to lead to my flourishing, what's going to lead to eternal life. 
So we need to approach it with a personal humility. And I think it also, um, it's worth saying, we also need to uh, approach it with a, a cultural humility. A, a, a humility that says, you know, the culture that I happen to raise, I, I was raised in 21st century America, and that's not necessarily the best, most enlightened culture of all time. And we we tend to think that the culture we're raised in is, is kind of the peak of, of human experience. And um, that's just not true. And so what's going to happen is this book is going to offend many of my cultural sensibilities, the sensibilities that just come from growing up as a 21st century American. And I have to recognize, hey, Scripture's been offending cultures for 2,000 years now, but it offends different cultures in very different ways. It hits me in my own particular cultural moment, but it hits other places, and it's in their cultural moment. But maybe, just maybe, this timeless book knows more than whatever is fashionable in my particular culture, which, by the way, changes every decade if you haven't been paying attention. Now, that doesn't mean we don't wrestle with this book. It doesn't mean we don't ask the hard questions. It certainly doesn't mean we don't experience doubt, which we do all of those and we should do those. And we want to be a community where we all can do that. But it does mean that we approach it with a fundamental humility, that we receive from God's word, his vision of good and evil, of human flourishing, of the good life, that we, that we trust in that and that we follow that even when it's hard. And challenging. That is so needed today. And I'll just leave you with that thought. I, I think that, that what is needed in our world right now is men and women who are grounded in the realities and the truths of this book. And men and women who are grounded in the God of this book. And because of that, are deep and thoughtful and can navigate this cultural moment that we're in with grace and with truth. So let's be those men and women for the sake of this world. Have mercy, have
Because of your blood, my sins are washed away. Now all of my life, I freely give. Because of your love, because of your love, I live. So as always, we hope that you've been encouraged by today's message. We encourage you now to consider the reflection questions that we'll put on the screens. And let me leave you with this great benediction. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good word and deed. Amen.